was going on in our church life. Um, it's so encouraging to hear the creative ideas, creative thinking, enthusiasm that there is for the different ministries of the church. And we hope to share some of that at the 11 a.m. hour this morning. Uh, there's a lot of good things that are going on, a lot of very positive developments, a lot of signs of growth. And so come and hear what's happening um, and hear about opportunities and how you might grow to get further involved. Many of you are already greatly involved. For some of you, this might be an opportunity to hear how you can get more further involved. Yes, so we brought up baptism on October 9th. This is the week you need to let us know if you would like to be baptized. Contact me, contact the church office so we can meet together, talk about what baptism is, get you ready for that day, and we'll have a great time of celebration. We're going to do it a little differently. We're going to have it in the afternoon. We're going to have a dessert gathering and have a small worship service outside. We're working on the details, but mark the date, October 9th. Margarita Alaska was a talented writer, novelist, journalist. Born and raised in England in the 20th century, she wrote numerous plays, biographies, short stories. She was both an original writer and a critic of English literature. She was driven to succeed. Margarita Lasky was a prominent contributor to the Oxford English Dictionary contributing over 250,000 quotes, the most quoted person in the Oxford English Dictionary. She made frequent appearances on the BBC, both on radio and on television. And though she was Jewish by heritage, she was an outspoken secular humanist and atheist. Yet not long before she died, in a television interview in 1988, in a moment of surprising candor on television, she said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. As Matthew puts together his telling of the story of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Messiah who came to earth as the God-man, he draws out the meaning and purpose of what Jesus did, who he was, what he said, what he wanted to do. And early on in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 1, verse 22, after the angel had visited Joseph in a moment of doubt and told Joseph to take Mary home as his wife and to adopt the son that she was to have as his own, the angel said, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And the rest of the gospel shows how this Savior came, fulfilled all that was needed so that, indeed, those that God is working in can be forgiven of their sins. Now, the greatest news that a sinner can ever hear is your sins are forgiven. The testimony of many psychiatrists today is that a majority of their patients could be cured if they could be convinced that they could be forgiven. The late R.C. Sproul tells the story of a famous psychiatrist who wanted to hire him to be on his counseling staff. Sproul said, I don't know anything about psychiatry or psychology, and therefore I'm not qualified. But his friend responded, you may not know anything about psychiatry, but you know something about guilt and forgiveness. 98% of the people who come to me do not need a psychiatrist. They need a priest. You cannot believe how many people are walking around this world with unresolved guilt that's eating them up. As we get to Matthew chapter 8 today, 
And our study in the, the gospel according to Matthew. We saw when we began chapter 8 that over chapters 8 and 9, there would be a series of miracles that Matthew draws our attention to. He lumps them together in three groups. We saw the first grouping of three miracles in chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. We saw the first two in the second grouping last week, and we're going to look at the third one today on the important subject of forgiveness. But more importantly, on the authority and the right of Jesus to do as he promised to do, to save his people from their sins. So as we look at this passage this morning, perhaps you have come this morning dealing with some things in your own life, wondering if there is hope for me. Can I be forgiven? Can I be clean? Can I be set right? Or perhaps there's a dear one close to you who is struggling with similar issues. Take notes this morning and have a conversation with them during the week. These issues are that important. If our greatest need is the forgiveness of our sins before a holy God, then what Jesus shares with us this morning in his teachings in Matthew 9 is truly music to the ears of those who have ears to hear so as we prepare to hear what that message would be in Matthew chapter 9, I invite you to stand in honor of God and his holy word as we read the first eight verses of this important chapter. And the inspired word of God says, And getting into a boat, he, Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that is given to us as a gift. And as it comes to us from your Holy Spirit, designed for our edification. Would you teach us this morning? Father, the temptations that we all have as they have distractions in our minds or burdens in our hearts that would hinder us from hearing you. We push them aside now as you enable us so that we can hear your word, your voice, your truth this morning. Guide us in these holy moments for your name's sake and for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Before we begin, a special greeting to those of you joining us online. I imagine you're sitting at home. I hope you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 9, and let's study the Word of God together. Our text begins by saying, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. The passage begins with Jesus and the disciples passing back over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This is an event that will happen several times in his ministry. He will pass from the western side of the Sea of Galilee in the city of Capernaum and go back over to the, the area of the Decapolis on the eastern side and cross back over again. 
In this case, he's on his way back to Capernaum. It's an interesting study to see how Jesus passes back and forth over this sea and what happens on one side of the Sea of Galilee and what happens on the other side. As we saw last week, Jesus had just been asked to leave a place because of a miracle he had performed. The Gentiles in the region of Gadara were not ready to receive Jesus because they didn't understand who he was and what he came to do. They saw that he had power, but it was a type of power that they didn't know, and they were afraid of what he might do with them, and so they asked him to leave. And now he's back in Capernaum, which was his headquarters during his ministry in the region of Galilee. Notice that the text says it is his own city. It was familiar to him and to those who knew him. He was not just the man from Nazareth. He's now this itinerant preacher in, in Galilee who has a headquarters in Capernaum. And we might be wondering after the severe rejection he had just received on the other side of the sea, what reaction will he receive as he arrives back in Galilee? And as we get to this passage in Matthew chapter 9, we see that there's conflict that will arise between the religious leaders and Jesus himself. We've already seen that Jesus himself has challenged the religious authorities in the, of the scribes and the Pharisees. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, this is the proper interpretation of the law and how it is to be lived out and that it applies to me. And the crowds were amazed. He was one who taught with authority. He was one who taught with gravitas. And they were drawn to him, whereas they saw the rules and regulations and ongoing law-giving of the scribes and the Pharisees as being burdensome. That was a foreshadowing of the tension that will build throughout the Gospel of Matthew. It'll get bigger and it will grow as the popularity of Jesus begins to grow. So will the hostility to him. And that brings us then to our first major point. We have four of them this morning as we look at our text. I hope you're following along in the sermon outline. The first one is the compassion forgiven. The compassion forgiven. The text says, and behold, some brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. I want you to imagine being a paralytic in those days. Unable to move, unable to get around. There are no specialty hospitals. There's no special beds. There's no personalized therapy treatment. There's no in-home care. You're just bound to a simple mat, completely dependent upon those around you to care for your every need with no hope of it getting better. Now, Matthew, as he tells his story, sometimes does not include as many details as we might find in Mark or Luke. And so if we were to take a chance to look at the examples as they are given in Mark and Luke, we can fill in the gaps. We'll find that Jesus is preaching at a home in Capernaum. There are Pharisees and scribes there, at least some of them. We're told that there's a large crowd that has come from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. The house was full on the inside. People were crowded around on the outside. Word is getting out. There's a, word, there's a man of God who is a healer, who is a teacher. He's in the area. People are interested. They come. And so as Jesus is in the midst of this teaching situation in a house, some men bring a paralytic to him. To him. More than likely, it was a friend of theirs, and perhaps they'd heard enough about Jesus to know that Jesus could do something about him. So they pick him up off his mat, and they want to bring him to Jesus. It never says clearly they asked for him to be healed, but clearly the implication is Jesus, do something. But they arrive on the scene. The crowd is large. 
The house is overflowing. People are gathered all around. How are they going to get this man to Jesus? But they were determined. Yes, there were obstacles to get their friend to Jesus, but they are determined to overcome those obstacles. So what do they do? They hatch this creative plan. It's high risk. Imagine. We don't have all the details, but we can imagine at least some of what it looks like. They, with great difficulty, carry the man to the site. They lift him up onto the roof. They begin to dig through the roof, composed of various tiles and mud, and they start to make the hole bigger and bigger. And imagine being inside of this house as debris is starting to fall from above. And suddenly a big hole appears, and it gets bigger and bigger. And then... In the midst of the noise and the dust, they, they look up through the hole and they see men standing on the roof and one lying on the mat. And then suddenly with four ropes, here they are being lowered down into the midst of this great gathering. You can almost see the man swinging on the mat as they're lowering him and dropping him down in front of Jesus. What a sight. What was the reaction? Can you imagine the surprised reactions on their face as they see this happening? I dare say if if the roof above us suddenly opens, it's going to get our attention. We're going to wonder what happens next. You know, I'm encouraged by the example of these men. Think of their determination. Think of their friendship. They want to bring their friend to Jesus. We don't know what they did afterward, but we can learn from this example. What about your own life? What needs are you facing? What do you need from Jesus? Who is in your life that needs Jesus? Are you willing to take the effort, the grit, the hard work, to do what you can, as best as you can, to bring someone to Jesus? This story gets a little more interesting. Jesus has been watching this event, and we're not told what his reaction is. And certainly this would have taken a little bit of time at least, and certainly there would have been some distraction. I can tell you as one who's just had the privilege of being a teacher for many years and a preacher, if somebody on this side of the room does something, everybody on this side of the room, they're looking over because they get distracted. Imagine now having a circus-like event going on as people are climbing up on the roof, digging through and dropping this man down into the mist. How long did this take? The text only says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is watching this amazing display of determination, of mercy, of compassion, and he's impressed. He makes no comment about the damage caused to the roof. He doesn't criticize them for this very unusual way of going about their efforts. He doesn't seem to be angry at all. He seems to be pleased that they consider the true needs of a person to be more important than even the property that they had to go through to get to him. And the text says he saw their faith. One might ask the question, whose faith did he see? Certainly it was the faith of these men that brought Jesus, brought this man to Jesus. But I think we can also say, based on the way the grammar is in the original, that it must have included some faith on the part of the paralytic himself. In any case, Jesus applauds their faith and the extremes to which they were willing to go to bring their friend to Jesus. Who are those that you know that need Jesus? And how far are you willing to go that they hear about him? 
as Jesus looks on and as he gives his response, notice first that he says, take heart. Literally means be of good courage. We, we can imagine that this man who has gone through this experience, first of all being a paralytic all of these years, now being marched down the street to this house, lifted up on a roof, dropped down through the roof, perhaps there's some anxiety on his part, there's some uncertainty, some bewilderment, and Jesus says, take heart. It's almost as if he is saying, you're in the right place. It's full of compassion for this man. You know, we experience trials in our own life as we do. We have one to whom we can call and go to. And because we are his sheep, because he is our shepherd, we can hear the words, take heart. You're in the right place. He goes on and says, take heart, my son. The word literally here is technon, which is often used to talk about child, a child. It's a term of endearment. He shows his affection for this man. He perhaps is a bit rattled by the whole experience, but he says, be of good courage, my child, my dear one, my son. Jesus speaks that way to those he calls his own. And the sweetest words we can hear as we read the word of God and as we contemplate who Jesus is for us is that we can hear from him, take heart, my child. And after he gives those words of endearment, of encouragement, he says, your sins are forgiven. I'm thinking at this point, there's probably a surprised look on this man's face. He might even be thinking, well, that's great that my sins are forgiven, but I came for healing. And I think Jesus is pointing us beyond the immediate and the obvious to what is the real and the eternal, and that is our greatest need is the forgiveness of our sins before a holy God. He's simply acting out and affirming what was said about him at the moment of his birth. He came for a purpose, to save his people from their sins. What's interesting is that this is the only time specifically in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus forgives an individual person. Of course, he provides for the forgiveness of all of his children, but here specifically he says, you are forgiven. And notice that he does it not because, at least as far as we have in the recording of the scriptures, the man asked for it, but because God will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and he will have compassion upon whom he will have compassion. Your sins are forgiven, he says. And we need to understand, then, what does that mean? What does it mean that our sins are forgiven? Well, what does it mean to sin? Sin is to violate any aspect of God's law and do anything that goes against any aspect of God's character. And when we sin, we accumulate a debt against God. When we sin, we dishonor God. The sin that we commit Yes, it might be against ourselves, it might be against others, it might be against an entity, I don't know, an animal, whatever, but ultimately our sin is against God. We dishonor him, we accumulate a debt before him, and we are obligated then to repay what we have taken from him, whether it's honor, whether it's stealing some glory, whether it's stealing worship, where we want to make ourselves the attention of what he is doing whether it's a lack of obedience or whether it's outright disobedience. So what does God do then when he forgives? We accumulate this debt, this never-ending debt piling higher and higher from the moment of our birth. What does God do in forgiveness? 
offensive to him that was against him. Look at Jesus on the cross. And what do they do? They put the charge above him on the cross. He called himself the son of God, which was blasphemy. But Paul takes that illustration and says, all that was written against us was nailed to the cross. They canceled what nailed him because of Christ. He cancels the debt because it's been paid in full. But forgiveness does not come cheaply. Forgiveness does not come without cost. Forgiveness cannot be offered just under any conditions. Before a holy God, forgiveness can only happen when the holiness of God and the love of God and the justice of God all work together and come together. And the good news of the gospel, my friends, is that's what happened in Jesus Christ. It was the holiness of God. It was the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the wisdom of God. And God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Unless the holiness and the love and the justice of God meet together, there can be no forgiveness. But who is the one that's speaking here? He is the very embodiment, personification, fulfillment of God in Christ, saving the world to himself. As I said in our introduction, referring to even studies among psychiatrists and psychologists, our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins before a holy God, and that leaves every one of us helpless and hopeless left to ourselves. Because by nature, we are sinners. That means from the moment of conception, because of Adam's sin, we inherit that sin, we inherit that guilt. By nature, we are objects of God's wrath, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2. And our, we are born bent in rebellion against God. We don't want his ways. We don't want his holiness. We don't want his righteousness. We want our ways. But then it goes on. Because not only are we sinners by nature, we are sinners by choice. Multiple times every day. Maybe an uncountable number of times every day. In act, in word, in thought, in deed, in emotion, in sentiment, in thought, in accusation. We pile up fact that we are sinners, helpless and hopeless, paralyzed in our sin to do anything that is pleasing to God. But God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive in Christ, raises the dead to life, and as he opens our eyes to see and gives us a new heart, we now are gripped to cry out and say, God, have mercy on me, even me, a sinner, and plead with him for forgiveness. And in Christ, dead people are made alive and guilty people are made clean. To know that the burden and guilt of sin can be lifted away is the best news that there is, both for now, with peace, temporary peace, day-by-day -day peace, but more importantly for all eternity, to be in his presence forever. That's more important than any relief from any other burden, whatever it might be. Johnny Erickson Chata has been confined to a wheelchair for over 50 years since a diving accident broke her neck at age 17. On the anniversary of her 50th year of being in a wheelchair, she testified 
what the gospel means. I think it's safe to say that few have known the pain and suffering and challenge that she has known in over 50 years of being in a wheelchair. But she testified on that occasion and on many other occasions that the thing she treasures the most is the forgiveness of her sins because of Christ Jesus. She said it's worth more to her than getting out of her wheelchair because she knows that forgiveness of her sin is eternal and that she will dance with the Lord forever. No, far greater tragedy is, is not the paralysis of one who has been stuck in a chair, but set free through Christ. The far greater tragedy is the one who has lived a life with a healthy and whole body and is cast into hell, having never gone to the feet of Christ to ask for forgiveness and redemption. My friends, this morning, have you gone to the foot of the cross and said, Jesus, set me free? from my sin and my rebellion. The name Jesus itself means Jesus, Yahweh saves, the Lord saves, the living one saves. So by his very name, he tells us what he came to do. He came to save his people from their sins. And the rest of the gospel gives a story. So when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, they're forgiven because he paid the price. So we might ask the question, in this particular case, when he says your sins are forgiven, is he saying that this man was paralyzed because of his sins? No, he doesn't say that. Jesus knows that there are many times we do suffer because of our own sins. That oftentimes we are our own worst enemies because of our attitudes and actions and bring sin upon ourselves. But there are times that we suffer because of the sin of other people. There are times that we suffer because of the weakness of other people. We may suffer because a belt gives way and a machine falls on us. We may suffer because we live in a world that is ultimately in rebellion against its maker. So while we cannot do a one-for-one -one always interaction between a sin and any possibility of suffering, we must confess that the only reason there is suffering in the world, whatever it is, is ultimately because of sin. Suffering did not come into the world until Adam and Eve rebelled against God. So Jesus, the second Adam, the greater Adam, who fulfilled all that God requires, overcomes, overcomes, and restores all that was lost in Adam. Because he's the one of compassion, who forgives. Secondly, we see the charge, blasphemy. We're not given the reaction of everyone that's involved in this story. We don't know the reaction yet of the paralyzed man or of his friend. Was he stunned? Was he elated? What did his friends do? Did a party begin? We're not told. We're only told at this point of one reaction. It's the reaction of the religious leaders. <clears throat> Excuse me. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. The scribes were the experts in the law. They knew all about the elaborate rituals needed to show that forgiveness is possible. They knew about the sacrifices. They taught about the blood, the clothing, the place, the priests, all of the things that were required to show that sin was covered through sacrifice. They were convinced that they were the ones who could pronounce whether someone was forgiven or not if they had followed all the proper procedures. And so they're shocked. How can this man pronounce this paralyzed man forgiven? What manner of man is this? Who does he think he is? They ascribe to Jesus 
the sin of blaspheme. To blaspheme is a serious charge. It is to besmirch. It is to mock the name of God. According to the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, blasphemy is the direct or indirect detracting from the glory and honor of God. That's a serious charge. Because under the law, the one who was accused of blasphemy was subject to the death penalty. If Jesus is committing blasphemy, then he should be put to death. And they knew that, and yet it seems that at least at this point, they don't say it out loud. They're kind of murmuring among themselves or to themselves. But the tension is beginning to build between these religious leaders and the Lord Jesus Christ. And later on in his ministry, they will openly accuse him of blasphemy and put him to death because of it. Now, on one hand, the scribes and these Pharisees, they're right. They're right that it is the prerogative of God alone to forgive sins. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah saying, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's good news of the gospel even there in the writing of Isaiah. I will not remember your sins. I will forgive your transgressions. The scribes were right. Only God can forgive sins. They had a zeal for God and for his law, but they didn't have true knowledge about who Jesus is or what Jesus is doing. If they had, they would have recognized that Jesus was not guilty in this matter. The text goes on to say, but Jesus knowing their thoughts. Let's stop right there. Jesus knowing their thoughts. Think about that for a minute. Matthew just kind of mentions it in a matter-of-fact way. But we have a statement of deity here. In the Old Testament, only God is said to know the hearts and minds of people. For example, as Solomon is praying in 1 Kings chapter 8, in the middle of his prayer, he says, Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and act, and render to each whose heart you know, according to all his ways for you. You only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Notice that Solomon clearly says that God alone knows the hearts of men, and God alone renders to them according to what they have done. Let those two phrases ring in your mind. You'll find similar expressions in 1 Chronicles 28 and Psalm 44, Jeremiah 17. But with this verse resonating through your mind, who, who God is, Yahweh in the Old Testament, look at what Jesus says about himself in Revelation chapter 2. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus claims the same prerogative that was given to Yahweh in the Old Testament. I know the hearts of all, and I render to each one according to what they have done. That's why we see then when Jesus is preaching in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, John writes in a commentary about who Jesus is and says, But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus makes an amazing statement here, an amazing claim. He is claiming that he is divine, and he does it two ways in this one story. First, by saying that he knows the hearts of all. And secondly, that he can forgive sins. What a Jesus we serve. I look forward to the day when we behold him face to face. And what we only grasp slightly now 
who will see in the fullness of it towards his outcome. The one who knows us, forgives us, is preparing a place for us, and the one that we will meet face to face one day. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, the text says, says, why do you think evil in your hearts? You see, the scribes had accused Jesus of evil, and in a sense, he, he returns the favor. He knows that it's dangerous to accuse him, the Holy One, of wrongdoing. But because they don't know who he is, they launch these false accusations. They think badly of him because they don't really understand who he is. But people still do that. The name of Jesus is used and misused and abused in all kinds of ways in the media and even in the hearts and minds of people on the streets, attributing all kinds of things to Jesus that are not true. Here they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And you know the irony is they were guilty of what they were accusing Jesus of. Jesus was not guilty of blasphemy. They were because they didn't recognize who God was as he was right in front of them in the flesh and he had the all authority. But Jesus is innocent to the charge of blasphemy. And then we see the challenge. Rise and go home. For which is easier, the text says, your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk. Now, which is easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier to show the effects that sin are gone? On the one hand, it might be easier to say, well, it's easier just to say you're forgiven because after all, how do you prove it's not true? How do you falsify that statement? But both are impossible for man in any case. Man cannot forgive sin of another man so that he is made perfect in the presence of God. A man cannot perform a miracle and make a lame man walk unless it is under the power of God. And so on the one hand, it might seem easier to say, well, just that sins are forgiven. But the reality is that the, at least relatively speaking, the forgiveness of sins is the harder work. Think about the history of God's people. Think about biblical history, how God has worked. You might think of the, the prophets of old, how the prophets of old were often used not only to preach the great things of God, but often to perform miracles. But what was one thing they didn't do? They couldn't forgive sins. They couldn't die or be the sacrifice on behalf of someone else. They could only announce that there is forgiveness through the ways of God. Think of the apostles in the New Testament. They performed great miracles. But all they could do is confess that there's only one way to have your sins forgiven, and that is through God's way, ultimately manifested in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness required the incarnation. It required God, Jesus Christ, leaving the glories of heaven, coming down and living on this dust with people that were created in his image for over 30 years and never sinning once. There's evidence right there that he's God. How many of us living among people for a day go without sinning? And he did it for over 30 years and didn't sin once. He must be God. But it was the cost of the incarnation. It was the cost of a perfectly lived life. It was the cost of perfect obedience and an atoning sacrifice. To get to the root of the problem, which is sin, is more difficult than to get to the fruit of the problem, which in this case was paralysis. But Jesus is able to forgive sins. He can heal the spiritual body. He can heal the physical body. He can heal the mind. He can heal the, heal the soul. He can heal the heart. And all that was lost in Adam, he will redeem one day also. 
it will be fully redeemed. He goes on. He says, but that you may know. Jesus knew that he had that authority. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is throwing down the challenge here. He has a big point to prove. He turns to his opponents. He says, but I want you to know that I, the Son of Man, have the power to forgive sins. I, the Son of Man, who came down from heaven, have the authority to act and to do what is only the prerogative of God. Think about what has been building in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has been showing us that he has authority. Authority over the law. Authority over demons. Authority over now sin. Authority over forgiveness. At the end of the gospel, he will say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The reputation of Jesus is on the line. His ministry is on the line. If he cannot forgive sin, then what happens next? He's not the Messiah. So he says, can I heal this man? That's easy to verify. Not quite as easily to verify healing someone from forgiveness. But he puts the two together. One commentator looks at the tension building. He says eternity hangs in the balance. If this man rises, Jesus is Lord and has the power to forgive sins. But if he does not rise, Jesus is a blasphemer and deserves the full punishment of the law. Jesus takes the accusation head on. He says, okay, so that you will know who I am and what I have the authority to do. He doesn't deny the claims of the scribes. He says only God can forgive sins. But that's where the challenge is. Think about who I am as I say this. It's either true, and I am God, or it's not, and you're right, and you're blaspheming, that if I'm God, you're in eternal peril before me. What do we do? He's giving a teaching lesson here. He wants to show those watching, especially the scribes and the Pharisees, who he really is and the power and authority that he has. And are you, are you not glad that he did that? I praise the Lord Jesus Christ for this declaration of what he did here. Because he did that, there's great hope for my soul if he wouldn't. Because it shows that he forgives sinners. This man desired to rise and walk. But his greatest need was to have his sins forgiven. And Jesus said that you may know the Son of Man has this authority. We introduced this term a few weeks ago. Let's just very quickly summarize how it's used in the Gospel of Matthew. It's important for us to see the fullness of what this term means. You saw that it can be used as the humble forgiver of sinners. It can be used as the suffering servant for God's people. It can be used as the future ruler in glory and power. Jesus is all of those things, fulfills all of those things, but sometimes it points to one thing more than another. He says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. With a simple word, he can heal. And that healing was confirmation that he can forgive sinners and all of his perfections. We saw in chapter 8, verse 17, it says, He bore our sins and our sorrows, our illnesses and our diseases to fulfill what the prophet said would happen. 
And Jesus is pushing back now the influence of sin and evil, knowing that ultimately he will push it all back. And one day in the new heavens and the new earth, before we get to the new heavens and the new earth, cast all of his enemies and all evil into the lake of fire. And righteousness will dwell in his presence forever. This is a great display of the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one in whom we should be in awe. He forgives our sins. He bears our illnesses. He has authority over our lives. And it says this man rose and went home. He had to stand up. I wish we had more details. How long did it take for him to realize that he could stand? But he did. He obeyed the commands of Jesus. You can imagine all the eyes in the place are upon him. How would they react to this command? What was the look on his face? Uncertainty as he tries to stand. Amazement. He folds up his mat. He puts it over his shoulder and he walks out. You have to believe this was no casual walk. Imagine the joy as he stands and he tests his legs and they prove solid. He realizes that his life has been changed forever. It says he picks up his mat and he went home. He had left home as the paralytic and known as one who could do nothing. Now he returns as the one who is healed and full. Wouldn't you have liked to have been an eyewitness to the party and celebration that happened in that home that day? As this healed man returns home, Jesus is giving a sign that he will restore everything that was lost in Adam. He hasn't promised to do it all right now. He will forgive our sins. He will be with us. He will teach us and encourage us in the midst of trials, not promising to deliver us from them, but to deliver us through them. But one day it will all be over his glorious presence. Rise and go home. And lastly, we see the crowd awestruck. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, Matthew carefully picks the details that he uses because his point here is the focus that Jesus is the son of man who has authority to forgive sin. He doesn't give a diagnosis on how the man ended up that way. He just pronounces him forgiven. And we get the reaction of the crowd. It's interesting to read the reaction of the crowd. In Gadara, they said, leave. What's the reaction here? It says they were afraid. They're wondering. What is this power that is in our presence? It even says they glorified God, but I think at this point it's a recognition that there's a power greater than themselves in their presence. There's a sense where they're ooing and aahing, but do they really recognize who he is yet as the one who is to be the Lord and Savior and Master and King and ruler over their lives? Did repentance happen at this point? We're not told. Many times people do see miracles of Jesus and they celebrate. But some walk away. Still not believing. They rejoice that this authority has been given to men, that God hasn't held in heaven all of his healing powers. He's allowing it to, to act upon the earth, that they're pleased that God is doing his work of redemption through this Messiah on earth, and people are being set free from sin and rebellion. 
That's what the crowd is doing. We'll learn more how the crowds will react as we move through this gospel. But here now, we hear from the crowds, we don't have a reaction from the religious leaders, at least not yet. We will in the next passage, and we will again and again and again, and they're not impressed. And Lord Jesus Christ just does what he's going to do, knowing what he will do. The crowd's going to react sometimes this way. The crowd's going to react sometimes that way. Today, there are gatherings that happen by so-called healers, so-called religious leaders, and crowds can come, and crowds can be amazed, and crowds can celebrate, and crowds can rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ and walk away as still stone-cold dead in their hearts as when they came because they have not met the living Christ. It is not enough to be amazed at what Jesus can do. Because it's not enough when we see the hand of God and say, that was great if we don't bend our knee before the holiness of God and say, you, you alone are worthy of our worship. This man had his sins forgiven, his body healed, but ultimately all because of Jesus. As the old adage says, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us a Savior. Either you are forgiven now for your sins as they are dealt with at the cross or you can hear the wonders of Jesus and walk away and have to deal with your sins before his holy throne of judgment one day. Jesus so far in the gospel of Matthew has begun to call people. Follow me, he says. And he is showing us step by step, piece by piece, that he alone can command us to follow him because he alone knows our thoughts. He alone can forgive our sins. He can heal our diseases. He has authority over the law. He has authority over nature. He has authority over demons. He has authority over sin. Does he have authority over your life? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior today? Next week, as we continue in the Gospel of Matthew, he's going to issue a challenge. He's going to call someone to leave his profession, to leave his way of life, and say, follow me. He's going to apply the teaching that he has been showing. But until that time, what are some lessons we can take from today's message? Because Jesus can do anything, we will go to him with our needs and with the needs of others. It is so great that we have the solution. And whatever our needs and whatever the needs are of others, we can bring them to Jesus. Secondly, because he alone can forgive our sins, we will freely confess our sins to him. Think of how offensive it is to a holy God who has gone to such extremes so that we can be saved and forgiven of our sins. And when confronted with our sins, we say, it was just a mistake. Oh, no, it's just a weakness in my personality. Oh, no, it's just a function of where I was born or how I was raised. He's a forgiver of sins, and we know he loves us. So as he reveals them, 
confess him and receive the lavish forgiveness that he offers. Thirdly, because he already knows our thoughts, we will walk in transparency and integrity with him. The one who knows you the most loves you the most. And if you are in Christ, he wants to have intimacy with you, fellowship with you, communion with you. He wants you to know his heart, even as he already knows yours. So walk in the light before him. Fourthly, because he has all authority, we will listen to him and obey his voice. For you said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then when we see the works of God, let us be the first to return to praise and glorify him and give thanks. When you see God answer a prayer, say thank you. When you see God provide for a need, thank him. When you see God working in someone else's life, enter into their joy and give thanks to God. When we see his hand, let us rejoice. Let us pray. Father, I'm so thankful this morning as you remind us in your word that you know the hearts of all of us. And you know our thoughts. And you know our passions. And you know our desires. On the one hand, Father, that's unnerving because we're in the presence of holiness and perfection. But thank you, Father, that because of Christ, you draw us in and say, yes, let's take care of us. Let's confess our sins. Let's give up our lives. Let's walk with, walk with the Holy Spirit of God. But we find that the gospel is so rich and so deep and so true. I thank you for a Savior, Father, who not only bore my sins and my sorrows, but bore my sicknesses and my diseases and of all the people that he came to redeem. And I thank you that we can taste and measure the greatness of salvation now. So, Father, would you stir up our hunger to know it more and more, to be satisfied more and more only by the things of Christ, and then would you stir in us the desire to be holy in your presence, be holy before one another, and look for that day when we stand in your presence, completely clean, glorified because of you. Thank you for the hope of that day. Strengthen us to live this day for your glory, for our good, as we pray in Jesus' name.